Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Mike Cole on The Bronze Lie. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the history category for episode number 153 with Chris Tomlinson on Forget the Alamo. I'm Chris Tomlinson, co-author of Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Mike Cole has been a lot of things in life. He has served in war and crisis response with the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and the Office of Naval Intelligence. He commanded the reserve at the U.S. Coast Guard Station, New York, which included maritime law enforcement and search and rescue operations around the island of Manhattan. He helped with the NYPD's Cyber Threat Intelligence Division, and he recently started fighting fires in New York's Hudson Valley. Oh, and he's also a published author who writes fantasy, sci-fi, and history. His new book falls into the latter category. It's called The Bronze Fly, Shattering the Myth of Spartan Warrior Supremacy. Mike, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, things are good. Uh, it's my pleasure, Mike, and I really enjoyed going through this book over the last couple of weeks. Uh, so for people who are unfamiliar, what exactly is The Bronze Lie? Uh, so The Bronze Lie is uh, pretty shamelessly a leftist revisionist hist- uh, military history of Sparta. But I, I don't want to oversell the politics here. Um, it, 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 it may be a leftist revisionist history, but it's certainly grounded in Sparta's actual military record. It grew out of just observing um, since 2016. Look, the, the idea that the, Spart- that the Spartans were history's fiercest, most badass warriors is, you know, really, it dates all the way back to 480 BC, uh, most likely, and has only accelerated over time. But, but since um, the sort of surge of right-wing nationalism around the world, not just in the United States with Trump, um, the Spartans as a symbol for the most extreme uh, positions on the far right, you know, that we're talking the Oath Keepers in the U.S. who attacked the Capitol on January 6th. We're talking the Golden Dawn. We're talking um, uh, Alianza Nacional in Italy, like these really serious far right groups. I actually um, consider myself a slightly left of center, but I'm really interested in reasonable discourse with people on the right side of the aisle. This we're not talking about that, right? We're talking about really extreme violent groups. And since 2016, they have just tripled down on the image of the Spartans as history's greatest warriors, um, never surrendering, never running from a fight, never losing. And, you know, anyone who's done any study of military history knows that that can't possibly be true. And so I started looking at Sparta's military record from a scorecard perspective. You know, you know, did they win? Did they lose? Did they run? Did they stand? you know, battle by battle, because we have the sources, right? We have multiple sources that can confer on these things. Um, And I sort of, that record spoke for itself. And I I looked around and realized that at least in the popular press, no one had ever written a book just laying out the case for that. Uh, And that's what I did. I think you stated that the battlefield record for them was 50, 71 and five. So not even 500 uh, in the fights that they waged over a a certain period of time. I'm curious, what was the first clue for you that what we believe about Spartans as the greatest warriors the world has ever seen is, in fact, a myth? Uh, So it it was another and better scholars. uh, Great idea. So you got to remember, I come out of the military and law enforcement and intelligence communities, and now I've added firefighting to that list. So if there's a 
a toxic male sector of American society. That's where I hang my hat, right? I, I, I was raised raised and bought lock, stock and barrel this idea that the Spartans were the biggest badasses and that the way for me to be a great warrior was to emulate them. But there's a professor at the University of Iowa named Sarah Bond, who's just amazing. Um, she was on Samantha B dealing, um, drawing attention to the sort of colored, you know, we see a lot of ancient and classical statuary as white, but that's really because the, the, the very bright paint that was on it is rubbed off and she was sort of bringing that to the public. Um, but she wrote a, an amazing piece called This Is Not Sparta in a sadly now defunct journal called Adelon that was founded by Mark Zuckerberg's sister, Donna Zuckerberg, who's also an amazing classicist. And um, she did sort of a survey in general of the myths that we have about Sparta. And when I read that, I was absolutely electrified. And, it, and I thought, you know, I need to hit this from a strictly military angle. So I really was expanding on the foundational work that she did in that piece. It's still online. It's still for free. It's called This Is Not Sparta. The professor is Sarah Bond. I highly encourage your listeners to check it out. Where does the Spartan story begin? And is there anything about their onset that people tend to get wrong? Uh, I mean, so we don't know where it begins, right? We, In terms of where the myth begins, I really think it begins with the Battle of Thermopylae. This is the most famous, one of the most famous battles in all of military history, fought in 480 BC. And there's the myth is that 300 Spartans uh, went out on a suicide mission to hold back a million Persians, right? Um, and the Oracle of Delphi said, if a king didn't die, then all of Greece would fall. Um, and and this sort of willingness to die rather than leave the field against hopeless odds is sort of created this, this myth. Well, if you look at all into the actual history of Thermopylae, none of this is true. It wasn't 300 Spartans, it was a thousand. It wasn't a suicide mission they thought they were going to be able to hold. They were outgeneraled. They were defeated. And not only did they fail to stop the Persian army, they didn't even significantly delay them, which was really the, the strategic goal of, of the whole stand at Thermopylae. And as a result, uh, uh, Xerxes uh, took his Persian army on and burned Athens to the ground. So it was just a horrible defeat. And what um, historian Tom Holland posited in a review of the film 300 is that this master Athenian spin doctor Themistocles realized, oh, my God, we just lost and we lost big and all of Greece is about to surrender to Persia. We need a story that turns this awful defeat into a propaganda victory and spun this idea of these stoic and, you know, fated warriors fighting to the last. Um, and that that grew in the telling. Right. And then that was combined with the fact that, look, the Spartans didn't write about themselves or if they did, we don't have any of it. We do have some epigraphy, but no literature. And so you have this othering, this kind of breathless fanboy fascination. There's no way to to misunderstand people better than to try to observe them from the outside. Right. Um, and, and we see this uh, throughout history. So I really think that that's where the myth grew. And I think that it it plays on basic human insecurity. Right. We all think that we're not good enough. We're not tough enough. We're not disciplined enough. And that if we just emulate a model. Right are more like X or Y than, than will fix whatever's wrong with us. I mean, look, this is the basis uh, for the Christian faith, right? Like uh, we're, we sent you an avatar, Jesus Christ. See Jesus, behave like Jesus and you will be good, <laughs> right? So it's really a, a version of that same kind of playing on insecurities. And I, I, I mean, no offense to Christians who are listening. I, I'm merely speaking um, to the, the concept of how using an example works. Um, it's certainly not a, not a commentary on the Christian faith, which I have great respect for. Um, but but this is what I mean. And I do think that that's that's why um, 
it expanded. In, in 1998, Frank Miller, of course, wrote the comic book 300, which Zack Snyder made into a film in 2006. And it was a great comic and a great movie. Um, and it was totally bigoted and really a horrible histor historical distortion. But in terms of storytelling and visuals, it really gripped the popular imagination. And it took this cult, this, this false belief, which we had been perpetuating for, you know, across the millennia and kicked it into pop culture overdrive just in our own time. Was Leonidas' death at least as heroic as depicted in the film? <laughs> well, we don't know, right? Um, so I will say this. Leonidas is portrayed by a 36-year-old hunky, super-muscular Gerard Butler, right? <laughs> the, re the real Leonidas was in his 60s. He's an old man. Um, now, that doesn't mean he can't get out there and fight. I'm 47. I certainly hope he got out there and fought. I certainly <laughs> hope that I'll be uh, swinging a spear around when I'm, when I'm that age. Um, but uh, what we do know is that toward the uh, on the third day of the battle, toward the end of the battle, he did purportedly lead his troops into the wide area of the pass out beyond the Philippian wall that they were originally defending. And it may have been that he was attempting to break out to the west because he realized he'd been cut off and that the uh, Persians had got around him to the east, which may very well mean that he fought very bravely uh, with his men trying to push out. So I'm, I'm happy to give him credit there. There are so many different uh, bits of pop culture in terms of how what the Spartan way was all about. Things that uh, you really proved to be falsehoods throughout this book. The fact that they feared no enemy, they hated wealth and luxury, that they were all about government over individual, hated foreigners, and loved liberty while opposing tyranny as well. And part of the story of Spartans is what happens to the youngest males in Sparta in training them to become these Spartan warriors. So uh, I guess let's start by asking if Spartan infanticide was legit, and if so, how uniquely Spartan was it back then? So it was legit, right? But it was no more legit, just like Spartan slavery. Like a lot of people, look, I do want to be clear, take this opportunity to say, a lot of people, I'm a leftist, and a lot of people in my own tribe, when I put out this book, are trying to take it and throw it at people on the right. Yeah, the Spartans suck. You know, look, no, no, thank you. Not interested. That's not why I wrote this book, right? I'm, I'm. We have enough crappy Twitter discourse where we just dump on each other all day, <laughs> and I'm, I'm incredibly ashamed of the role I played in that uh, in my past, um, and I don't want. I want no part of it in the future. I wrote this book to see the ancient Spartans in their humanity. I wrote this book to engage with the truth of them. Uh, that means both their successes and their failures, not just to pillory them as a as a universal evil. And I'm not interested in in people who who want to chase that line. So uh, I bring that up because yes, the Spartans did practice infanticide, just like the Spartans practiced slavery, but they did did so in a way that is not particularly notable by the standards of the ancient world. Um, you know, there was a tremendous amount of infanticide going on back then. What is false is this notion from Plutarch, which most people have bought lock, stock and barrel that, you know, the Spartans would inspect children when they were born. And if they were in any way weak or, or defective or deformed, they would throw them into a chasm um, because they would never be strong enough to serve the state, which is just nonsense because People don't do that. People love their children. Uh, I certainly people in desperate situations may practice infanticide, people who are troubled. But the idea of a culture practicing this wholesale flies in the face of how human beings bond with their own children. It's just nonsense. And the, I provide a lot of evidence in the story, but one of, uh, in the book, but one of the best pieces of evidence we have is that Agesilaus II, who is one of Sparta's more renowned kings, 
Um, he was born with a club foot and nobody threw him into a chasm. Uh, and people might argue, well, he was of the royal line. He was of the royal line, but he was not in succession for the throne. So it just Plutarch's story is nonsense. Uh, and uh, and I think it's it's important to keep that in mind. Were Spartan boys who were chosen to become warriors or to be trained up as warriors really taken from their families around five, six, or seven to begin that training? And if so, what did that training look like in those single-digit years? Right, so here's another thing that historians don't like to do. We don't like to say we don't know, Hmm. um, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes the evidence isn't there to be sure. Um, It is possible, maybe even likely, that they they were taken from their families and enrolled in some kind of communal educational system like this. But how brutal it was, and this is the famous agoge, which is, you know, the upbringing, the rearing, which is more accurately called the bevia, which is what Xenophon called it, which just means sort of the education. Um, You know, there's this scene in 300 where where Leonidas has to kill a wolf with his bare hands or something, some kind of nonsense like that. Hmm. And there's plenty of evidence that during the Roman period, when Sparta, you know, Sparta had ended its real geopolitical and military relevance, that they were playing up the brutality of this system to try to get tourists to come and visit and spend money. Hmm. So we, we have evidence that, yeah, maybe there was some kind of communal communal education system, but it was it may not have been anywhere near as brutal as, as we believe, but the only honest answer is we don't know. And you have to remember that our main source on the brutality of this educational system is Plutarch. Plutarch is a Greek writer writing some 500 years after the period that he's purportedly describing. He does not have modern standards of historical objectivity or journalism that we are trained with in the modern age. And He's not even writing a history. When Herodotus writes, he straight up says, I'm trying to tell the truth. I'm trying to tell a history here. Uh, Plutarch is writing a moral a s- series of moral essays in his Moralia and his Parallel Lives, where his goal is to tell you a story that will help bolster your character, not necessarily to tell the truth. So from this, we should definitely not be assuming that this uh, uh, theorized brutal education system was true. I believe you said that a critical component to the Spartan warrior in training teenage years was entry into a system of institutionalized pedi- pe- pedera- pederastry, if I can get that word out yeah, of my mouth. Pederasty, yes. That's pederasty. Right, homosexual pederasty. Yeah, yeah. okay. So uh, what, what's up with that? Why was that such, such an important so part makes, of the process? It, it, makes, it makes people incredibly uncomfortable, right? People who, I mean, first of all, pederasty, I think makes everyone in the modern world uncomfortable. But homosexuality in general, especially homosexuality established, you know, associated with the world's toughest warriors, that makes people super uncomfortable. But this is very, we have a lot of evidence that this was extremely common in the ancient world and not just in Sparta and not even just in Greece. And that this was sort of part of how you advanced yourself politically, how you obtained a mentor, someone who would advocate for you in noble society that that relationship was at times um, uh, sexual and that, you know, there's all kinds of evidence that these relationships went far beyond the sexual, that this that this um, senior member of this partnership would train and uh, advocate for sort of be there, you know, uh, bring them food and supplies, you know, uh, speak up for them and advance them in the right circles, kind of almost like uh, bringing them out at the debutante ball. But yes, there's plenty of uh, evidence that this was sexual as well. And uh, look, uh, obviously, this this clash is pretty hard with what, you know, we generally think of, especially in the United States and Western Europe, 
of you know what our military ethic is in the modern day but and so we have a tough time and we want to dismiss it um but it, it, you know it's not something you can look away from if you're if you're taking the sources seriously what was life like for spartan warriors in early adulthood was it this singularly focused thing that was essentially their profession being uh these trained soldiers for a living or did they have lives away from uh the military for which they served Oh, God, no. I mean, this is the thing that's that's so look. So this idea of professionalism, this modern idea of professionalism that you that you you do a job and that's your life and that's what you're here to do. And this does not exist in the ancient military world, at least in the ancient Greek military world. Warfare in ancient Greece was an amateur affair. It was think of it like being a reservist. You had a job, you you threw pots, you, you know, you tanned hides, you mostly you farmed. And, you know, you had a spear that you inherited from your granddad and it, and it sat rusting, you know, in your shed and, uh, or rather getting a patina, you know, on the bronze. Um, and, you know, then every once in a while, your, your city state, your polis would sound a horn and you'd line up with everybody else and off you go to fight. Um, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of training required. In fact, the phalanx in which Greek hoplites, this is their heavy infantry fought were necessarily incredibly simple. You stood with your shield overlapping with the guy next to you, you faced forward and anybody in front of you, you stuck the pointed part of the spear in him. It's not super complicated. And it was designed to be that way because most of the people doing it were amateurs. For the ancient Spartans, um, you know, this idea of them being professional is, is nonsense. They were more disciplined and organized. There is evidence for that. And I point that out in the book. And that's because they had a slave caste, the helots, who did all of the domestic and agricultural uh, work for them, but only for the top 1% of the population, the, the, what we call the Spartiati. This is the elite homoioi, the, the peers. You know, think of them like knights. And you can even think of them like medieval knights in terms of what their lives were like. So what's your life like when you're an aristocrat on top of society? Are you spending it all day training for war? No. You're trading horses, you're out hunting, you're doing art and dance. And yes, we have evidence that the Spartans did art and, and you know, uh, enjoyed music and dance and those kinds of things that they purportedly didn't like. You're dealing with politics and marriage alliances, right? You are also doing sports and doing some kind of training. You, They may also have had time to drill. Um, however, we don't have evidence of that. We have a lot of evidence of Spartans training physically in things like running or throwing a javelin or a discus sports training, but we don't see them drilling with weapons and formations. We do see the outcome of, of greater discipline and organization, perhaps than other uh, Greek heavy infantry in the period. But I, if I, if when I say, when I tell people, if you're trying to picture the life of the ancient Spartans, at least at the top of the food chain, picture the life of an aristocratic baron or a knight from the middle ages. Like that's what their lives were like, not some super warrior who thinks about nothing but war. Why was the shield such an important piece of equipment for Spartans? So we don't know that it was. Um, you know, again, we're going off of Plutarch. Uh, we have two quotes here. One is, and I, I can give a practical reason why it probably was, but at least what's taken from the sources, there's the famous quote from the Moralia where the mother says to a Spartan son, gives him his shield and says, come back with this or on this. She actually says with this or on this is, is all she says. Hmm. Um, with it or on it, if I remember the Greek correctly which is great and super dramatic, right? Because if you're running away from the enemy, you're going to throw your shield away. It was quite heavy. Um, and there's another 
quote, I can't remember if it's a Gesalaus the second who's being quoted or Agus, and it's also from Plutarch. And the quote is, someone asks him, you know, why um, does the Spartan prize his shield over everything else, not his armor? And this and the and this king replies, because the the armor the Spartan wears only to protect himself, but the shield protects the whole line. Um, and that's an incredible quote. And all, but again, these are quotes given five centuries after they were supposedly taken down. We don't know what Plutarch's source were. And he's writing a moral essay. He's not writing a history. And anything that sounds that badass and cool, I mean, come on, man. Like, that's not how people talk in real life. It's almost, you know, it's almost certainly BS. But I will say this. The shield, when you look practically at how the Greek hoplite fought, is really the most instrumental and pivotal piece of the phalanx. Like, if those shields don't stay overlapping, a phalanx can't exist. You can't hold the line. There is no heavy infantry combat. So seen from a practical perspective, it's also not just a defensive um, anyone who's done reenactment fighting, which I have, that shield is also a very potent weapon, almost more potent than the spear when you get into the to the scrum of the phalanx, at least the way I fight it is. <clears throat> but um, so seen from that practical perspective, yes, I could totally see their, their, the, the loss of one shield as being a real disgrace. And that's not just a myth because it really would. You throw away your shield, you're the gap in that line, you're going to get everybody killed. You keep mentioning spears when talking about weapons. I haven't heard a lot of talk about swords. I think a uh, popular thought is that Spartans used shorter swords. Did you find any evidence for or against this? Yeah, there's some evidence, both archaeological in terms of artistic representations and in, in terms of literary evidence that they used a shorter sword. But again, it's not an overwhelming amount of evidence. You know, we don't have, if we had a cache of 50 swords that I knew came from a specific period in Spartan history that were demonstrably of a shorter length than what we're seeing coming out of Athens and Thebes, I would have felt better about it. Um, but sure, why not? Um, also, be, you know, again, like there are practical considerations that might make a shorter weapon for thrusting purposes of, of advantageous. And that's something I point out in the book. Ironically, the Jedius, who's right, again, you know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of committing a sin here because he also writes hundreds of years after what he's talking about, but he talks about the very, very practical applications of having a short thrusting weapon um, from the Roman perspective. And it, it certainly applies, I think, here from a practical perspective, and it's something I point out in the book. It's commonly believed that Spartans despise material gains. Did they really use iron instead of gold and silver for their money? Oh, good Lord. So this is another one, uh, which is just nonsense. Like, of course, they used uh, um, a gold and silver coin. There's just tons of evidence for it. And more importantly, there's tons of evidence that they were just as wealth hungry as anybody else. In fact, their refusal. So to be a homoioi, to be to be a Spartiati, a member of the Spartiati, one of these elites, you had to be able to pay your mess dues. And these are pretty expensive. Um, to eat in your communal mess, you had to be able to contribute. And if you couldn't pay, you fell out of the ranks of the elite and became a hypomeone, which is a, an inferior. You could still fight, but you were no longer part of, of the ranks of this elite. And because of Spartan inheritance laws and because of wealth inequality, of, of money aggregating among fewer and fewer people, which, you know, sound familiar? You know, it's sort of the, the world we live in now, right? It's the world we've always lived in. Sparta's rigid refusal to expand the citizenship franchise behind the people, apart from the people who could afford this, led to this thing that they called the Oligon which is the, 
the, the, the fewness of men. They, they had a manpower crisis because they, people couldn't afford to. If, if, if they didn't care about money and they didn't want to accumulate wealth, then how would this possibly have happened, right? It wouldn't. And in the end, it was so bad that they had to start arming their slaves and equipping them as heavy infantry, which is incredibly dangerous because, you know, you, you oppress slaves and then you give them weapons and train them. There's a chance they're going to turn on you. So the fact that the Spartans were willing to do that rather than redistribute wealth is an indicator that they were just as greedy, if not more greedy than everybody else. And, and that's just one of dozens of examples of Spartan creeds. So, no, they use money like everybody else and they want it like everybody else. I was amused to learn that Sparta would occasionally feign religiosity in relation to the battlefield. Do you have a favorite example of this, Mike? Yeah, I, my two favorites. It's a great contrast is that with um, with Marathon. Uh, <laughs> the Battle of Marathon, you know, the, the Greek coalition, which I guess in this term is only Athens and Plataea. This is in 490 BC. It's another Persian invasion. And they go, oh, my God, the Persians are coming. We need your help. And Sparta goes, absolutely, we will be there. But we have to celebrate the Carnea, which is our major festival. So we just need a few days. And then they sidle on up the road after the battle is over. And they go, hey, great job. You already won. <laughs> and when you and like so I had this argument with Professor Stephen Hodkinson, who's sort of the, the global expert on Sparta. Um, it was kind enough to blurb my book and has been a mentor to me. And he said, look, Mike, you know, I think you're not being fair. You know, religion to the ancient Greeks, it's not like religion to you. They took this stuff a lot more seriously. And I got it. I got it. And he's got a good point. Um, but I don't know that I agree because Sparta also had a very practical reason. Right. They live south of 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 marathon south of the of the isthmus of corinth it was very much in their interest to have a a, a rival athens and and persia beat the beat the crap out of each other and then sparta could march in later and clean up the mess and it's because that um that practical goal for sparta intersects with this convenient religious excuse it makes me think it was more cynical but what's so interesting is while the carnea was a total prohibition on spartans marching in 490 bc in 480 bc when it's thermopylae all of a sudden the spartans can only send 300 of their elites and a king so which is it you know <laughs> can you not go you can only send some people like you know, nobody sort of spots these contradictions. And, and this is just two examples uh, of it. There are many, 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 many more throughout Sparta's military history. So many that it becomes hard to deny that they definitely use their strict religious observance as an excuse not to fight when it was convenient for them. And the irony is what survived into the modern age is this idea that the Spartans were super religious and strictly observed their religious observances. That's all that survived, not the not the rest of the obvious and glaring fact that it was used as an excuse not to fight. Well, another element that's also survived is that they feared no enemy, but I assume there are a multitude of examples of them choosing not to fight because they realized they would have gotten their asses kicked too. Of course, and and running from battle and surrendering. Like they're they're, you know, and you can go through in the center of the book I include a scorecard of all this and I have it all in the notes. And in the text of the book, I go through each battle and give these examples. Like, yes, they ran all the time. They were defeated all the time. They surrendered all the time. And I, I want to be clear, not more than other people in the ancient world, right? This is not, you know, they're not special, special losers. They're just normal people like everybody else. And, and that's the real point I want to make in this book. You know, it's funny. Um, you know, I've been an intelligence officer, um, warfighter, cop, uh, firefighter, and I have spent a lot of time as an intel officer overseas embedded 
with, you know, the, the, the ninjas of the United States, right? I've run with SEALs, I've run with CAG operators, I've run with MARSOC, I've run with PJs. These are the elite of Americans, you know, America's um, military might. And I've gotten to run operations with them and be in their hip pockets and be their tactical intel guy while we're running out and hitting targets. And of course, they are absolutely elite for a reason. They have better training, they have better equipment. They have a, a kind of heart that you don't see in a commitment to the fight, but they remain human beings. They get scared. They make mistakes. They run. They screw up. You know, and that being confronted by that, the reality of the humanity of, of military elites, I think, really informed the, uh, the the thought on this book. Well, and one of the reasons why the Navy SEALs are so impressive is because they're so damn adaptable to a situation. It can be something totally unexpected, but they will usually troubleshoot and problem solve their way out of that situation were the Spartans very adaptable when it came to encountering a battle and maybe some things that they were not expecting going into it? So, well, this is the thing, like, no, overall, no, but they did have some bright spots and they did, they do have moments of adaptability. One thing I definitely feel the evidence points to very clearly is that there was a social conservatism in Sparta. They definitely were that part which is definitely part of their popular myth, that they didn't like change, they, that they believe that they things should be the way they were and stay the way they were. That much appears to be true. Sparta certainly believed, seems to have believed, that their heavy infantry component was all they needed, that, 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 that the, the, the noble goal of being a Spartan hoplite, that was the, the pinnacle of Spartan society, and to do anything else militarily was not socially acceptable. And so they never developed a native naval siege engineering, light infantry, cavalry component. And that tended to be outsourced to allies or hired out through mercenaries. And that really did appear to sandbag them, that ability to embrace what we in the modern military call combined arms doctrine. It really seems to have held them back and cost them very dearly in, in, um, in major battles. But uh, if you look at the siege of Plataea, which I cover, um, if you look at King Cleomenes III in the Hellenistic age, this is in the, in the um, end of the third century BC, arming the Spartans in the Macedonian manner, sorry, the Macedonian manner, I, it's a kappa, so I use the Greek, you know, with two-handed pikes instead of the one-handed spear, you know, like these are real innovations, Spartan military innovations. So again, this is the problem with, with reductivism, right? Like when we look at history, we, you know, you can't look at every individual case, right? You want to find rules that explain who a people are. But the reality of it is, is that people are complicated and, and that you have to be willing to deal with people on a somewhat individual basis and, and do that hard work of, of investigating things on a case-by-case basis. It's a lot more work, and I certainly, you, you can't, you know, it's impossible to do it all, but I tried to do it more in this book. Since you just mentioned Plataea, why was that a good example of Spartan discipline actually breaking down too? Oh, so no, I want to, I want to, uh, these are two separate instances. I'm talking about the siege of Plataea during the Peloponnesian War. You're talking about the, the battle, battle of Plataea, Plataea, excuse me, yeah. Right, and, and, no, no problem at all. Um, and that's a great example of Spartan discipline breaking down. Um, is that uh, Amon Ferretas, who is a commander uh, there, um, uh, is ordered uh, to move his troops and uh, refuses uh, on a matter of pride. He doesn't want to retreat and even throws a rock at the feet uh, of his commander. Um, he moved eventually, 
uh, but not before there was a complete breakdown of, of discipline that almost cost the Spartans the battle. Um, that's, you know, that's not even it. The, the first battle of Mantinea, we have um, two units ordered to shift to the left to uh, close a gap in the line, and they refuse, possibly because they're pissed off um, at the perceived cowardice of the king who's giving the order. Um, there are lots of examples like this. Um, and again, they're very human examples, and they're totally... look. Both Plataea and Mantinea were victories for the Greeks, uh, for the Spartans, the, the coalition that the Spartans were serving as a part of, excuse me. And at first, Mantinea was a pretty glorious victory. I, I'd argue that Plataea, while it's considered a glorious victory, it was sort of snatching victory barely from the jaws of defeat. Um, so, you know, these are understandable things, but what survived into the modern age is this reputation of the Spartans as being completely disciplined, never refusing orders, and you know, being these ultimate professionals, which is just, again, the only way people can reach these kinds of conclusions is if they've never read anything in the actual sources about Sparta. At their best was the Spartan infantry, a well-oiled machine as pop culture depicts, fighting in lockstep, every move made by one soldier being contextually important to the others? I'd say yes, and there's yeah. evidence of that. Um, uh, at their best, mind you, right? So, And their best is not often, you know? But we do have examples, I just gave the example of First Mantinea, where the Spartans could have pursued fleeing enemies, and uh, would have that would have really messed things up for them tactically, and they opted not to because they had the discipline and, and the and the good command and control to do that. And but I would also argue that any Greek phalanx operating uh, at its pinnacle would be moving as one unit. That that very formation, the way that all of classical Greek warfare was conducted, depended on unit cohesion as all men um, operating as one. And we have plenty of, of examples of you know people breaking the line, getting out ahead of their support, running off to loot a baggage train instead of uh, staying uh, where they're supposed to, uh, costing commanders very dearly. But yes, it is accurate that when Spartans were at their very best, not always, but sometimes, they were fighting as a machine. What was the Sicilian disaster from around 414 BC? Oh boy. Disaster not for Sparta. Sparta is a fantastic victory. Oh, boy. So um, it is this tripling down on a ill-advised campaign um, uh, toward the close of the Peloponnesian War um, with Athens attempting to uh, take Syracuse um, at the instigation uh, of Alcibiades, who is the sort of larger than life, um, almost like a Kardashian style celebrity uh, <laughs> in, in uh, Athenian culture and politics. And um, Sparta very, very wisely and, and brilliantly sent this um, uh, Spartan, uh, he began as a Mofax, he was probably a Spartiate by the time he got to Syracuse to, to advise and command. He really was at the, the leadership of these helots, of these freed slaves, but he, he organized and, and provided um, leadership to the Syracusans in, in um, holding off the Athenian invasion. And Athens sent not just one army, but two fleets and two armies and lost them all. It was a complete and utter debacle for them and really uh, turned the tide uh, in the Peloponnesian War pretty decisively towards Sparta, although Sparta was still not able to win it um, without ultimately Persian support and Persian money. And what's so incredible about that is here they, they have this reputation for being the, the fighters for freedom. You know, they're, they're, they're holding off the Persians and keeping Greece free from foreign Oriental influence, which is what these far-right groups would have you believe. Um, and the truth is that they were... <laughs> 
absolutely in bed with Persia, loved Persia. Sure, they were fighting them in the Greco-Persian War, but Persia was was so influencing Spartan policy in the Peloponnesian Wars that it was actually dictating it. And without Persian gold in the Persian Navy, they would never have won. How did the Battle of Leuctra in 371 BC begin to seal Sparta's fate as a city-state? I would argue that it didn't begin to seal it. I would argue it sealed it. Hmm. Um, it broke Sparta's spine. It, it was the end, uh, I would say. Uh, you know, people may disagree with me, um, but I would argue that Sparta wasn't military rele- militarily relevant again post-Leuctra really until the, um, the Cleomenean War and the Hellenistic Age. This is that um, King Cleomenes I spoke to you about before who was defeated at the Battle of Selassie in 222 BC. He sort of presided over this re-energizing, this last gasp of Spartan military relevancy. And Lutra was just an, an absolutely fascinating battle and a stroke of brilliance um, by uh, two Theban leaders, Epaminondas and uh, Pelopidas. Pelopidas at the head of the sacred band, another 300. And by the way, 300 homosexual lovers. There's a wonderful book by James Rom, which I really, R-O-M-M, called The Sacred Band. Uh, which I really uh, encourage your listeners to read. He's such an incredible writer, both not just as an historian, but he's probably the best narrative prose stylist writing in in history today. I just love his work. But um, it's a really simple uh, tactic. Uh, All they did was they knew that uh, in ancient warfare, the the tendency was to stack your most honored troop, your best troop. You know, when the battle lines in 371 BC, put their king, Dumbrotus, and the Hippias, which is the, you know, the, the royal guard around him on their right. And uh, Epaminondas and the Thebans put their best unit, the sacred band, on the left, which is very unusual, which meant that the two best units would clash. There's some evidence that they concealed the sacred band um, on the left behind a line of normal looking troops. And then they refused their right, which is to say that they echelon back the right side of their line. This means that it would take the full Spartan line a lot longer to reach and fully engage with the Theban line. The idea was, and then they did one more thing. They took that line of the sacred band on their left and they stacked them 50 deep. Now, normally in that period, you would stack eight deep, right? Six deep. Um, so this gave them a lot more punching power. Think of it, I, I describe it as a living spear pointed at the heart uh, of Sparta. And the gamble that they made was, look, if we engage on a full line, yeah, we might lose. But if we can knock out the king and the royal guard before anyone else can fight, because they're still going to be crossing the battlefield to reach our other wing, they'll lose heart and they'll run. And that's exactly what happened, is that they, they immediately blitzed the Spartan right. They killed King Cleombrotus. Well, they mortally wounded him. He was carried off the field. Um, And they slaughtered the royal guard. And that sent panic through the rest of the Spartan army who gave up the field. And they were so terrified, by the way, um, that when another Spartan army uh, arrived to potentially take up the contest again, they elected not to. They elected to turn tail. So I I really do see Lutra as the snapping of Sparta's spine. So with all that you've just said and all that you've obviously written in trying to correct the narrative regarding the Spartans and pointing out the fact that they are in fact human and they had some successes, but they had plenty of failures to go along with that. At the end of the book, you express an admiration for Sparta and Spartans. So what inspires you about the Spartans? Because, look, 
I don't know about you, man. I'm the biggest screw up I know. Like <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know anybody who makes more mistakes than I do. Um, I spend my whole life screwing up. How did I get into this? How did I manage that? Like that's that's like the story of my life. And I always say this. Um, people like like the Lord of the Rings. Man, I hated that um, because Frodo Baggins is the main character in that story. And I'm assuming that all your listeners know Lord of the Rings. If you don't, I don't know how to help you. But Frodo, like I hate him as a character. What's wrong with Frodo? What flaws does Frodo have? None. He's excessively earnest. There's nothing wrong with this dude. And so I bounce off of him. I have no interest in him whatsoever. But if we're talking about fantasy, I really like Game of Thrones. Well, it's A Song of Ice and Fire. The TV show is Game of Thrones. Because all of the characters in there are humans. They screw up. They mess up. You know, they, they do terrible things that they don't mean to, but they do them anyway. And, and in the end, they find a way. So that way, when they do do something great, when they do have a triumph, I think, wow, you know, maybe there's hope for me too. And that's the story of Sparta to me. Like, these are people who tried to do something extraordinary, right? And they had some great success. They were a real geopolitical player, not just in, in ancient Greece, but in, in the whole ancient Mediterranean. And while they certainly did, I think, overall fail to produce this wildly militarized, you know, hyper successful um, military society, they certainly had incredible successes. And I said this in the end of an article that I did for the Smithsonian, which is like, well, if flawed people like them can screw up and still find great meaning and great success, well, then maybe I can too. And that's the message that we rob ourselves of when we insist on seeing the Spartans as superheroes instead of as human beings. I love that answer, and I fully agree with you that none of us are perfect, and I make plenty of mistakes. And what separates the haves from have-nots in this world, Mike, is those who fail tend to take risks in failing, learning necessary lessons, and extracting those lessons as they move forward, and hopefully don't make those same mistakes over and over again. I guess my next question for you is somebody who has done so much throughout his life, serving in war and crisis response with the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Office of Naval Intelligence. You commanded the reserve at the U.S. Coast Guard Station, New York, which included maritime law enforcement and search and rescue operations around the island of Manhattan. You've helped with NYPD Cyber Threat Intelligence Division, and you've recently started firefighting uh, for New York's Hudson Valley as well. So I guess my question for you then is what is one of the biggest screw-ups you've made in your life and what is the valuable lesson you extracted from that oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh um sure i'll I'll admit it um uh uh, in iraq um the i think it wasn't the first time i took fire but one time i took fire um i uh left my long gun in my vehicle i started yanking on my um thigh rig to clear my pistol um, I didn't depress my thumb release and I yanked the thigh rig all the way up, crushed my junk. And, and so, I mean, I didn't get shot, thank God. Uh, and that's, but that's not because of me. It was because whoever was trying to blow us up, you know, wasn't a great shot. Um, and this is after thousands of hours of training. This is, this was after being in Iraq for, for, uh, you know, over a month. And the lesson to me was that like, you know, when when the adrenaline starts flowing and when stuff starts blowing up, you know, around you when you're in the shit, sometimes you go on autopilot and do dumb stuff, huh. you know, and like and and I and I had other situations where I came under fire and I performed like a hero. You don't 
when you think about military heroism, you have to acknowledge, you know, that you, you are in a bag of nerves and that your body will sometimes take over and work on its own. And like, that is true for absolutely everybody. And I'm certainly not going to throw any, any Navy SEALs under the bus. Um, you know, uh, that's their story to tell, but I've certainly seen similar levels of screw up on the part of Navy SEALs on the part of, you know, uh, Air Force PJs, these, this hyper elite of, of the American military. This is what it's like to go to war for everybody. And anybody who tells you differently is trying to sell you something. You know, I just listed off the laundry list of responsibilities you've had throughout your life. What motivates you? Because you've obviously taken on some uh, some some pretty crazy uh, jobs and some some pretty crazy responsibilities. And uh, that, you know, lives are literally on the line if you screw up at times. So what is it that motivates you? Um, I just don't want to be scared. Um, you know, it's funny. People look at people who do action jobs like I do and think that they're motivated by bravery. It's the opposite. I'm motivated by terror. You know, I didn't have the best family life. Um, and when you don't have a lot of safety at home, you grow up scared of everything. Um, and when you are taking that fear away from somebody else, when you are, you know, looking at someone else and knowing that they feel safe because of what you're doing, I won't say that it puts that fire out for you totally, but it helps. Um, and over time, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a sensitive warfighter. I'm the guy who goes to therapy, right? Over time, I get better at that, you know, and I'm, I'm less afraid. And, and then you reach a point where it's how you're in the world and you can see that what it's doing is good. Um, and I don't ever want to be in a position in my life. I had a brief stint after I left the NYPD where I stopped doing direct emergency services work. I was always doing security, um, but I wasn't doing like firefighting where I'm running into a burning building. And that was a rough few years. And it's only when I started firefighting that I realized, oh, yeah, this is what I need to be doing. If I'm not serving other people at risk of my own life, and it has to be at direct risk of my own life, then I'm not I'm not servicing that part. Right. I'm not speaking to that. I don't know, that gulf that opened up in my childhood. And uh, yeah, it may be baggage, but it's baggage I'm happy to carry because it does a lot of good in the world. The Bronze Lie is not the first book that you've published. You've written fantasy, sci-fi, and history. Is there anything about writing that scares you? Oh, my God. Yes, of course. <laughs> I mean, oh, my God. Look, The Bronze Lie, are you kidding me? I'm getting, I will not believe the amount of shit being shoveled my way right yeah. now. I'm sorry, am I allowed to curse on the show? You're allowed to cuss, yeah. Okay, uh, I mean, like, it's, it's. I, I get death threats. I have, you what? know, Mike Cernovich. Wait, fucking, one you, of, you, you get death threats for this? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. my God. Multiple, multiple death threats. Um, I for, forget this book. I got death threats for an article I wrote in the new Republic and in the daily beast a couple years before this book came out. Oh yeah. I get death threats all the time. And uh, Mike Cernovich, who is one of the most powerful and influential alt-right far right figures in the United States attacked me on Twitter recently. And there's thousands of his followers just coming at me, most of them because I'm Jewish, you know, coming at me with this anti-Semitic claptrap, you know. And of course it's scary, right? You know, any one of these people could show up at my house. I mean, be a bad fucking day for them, but, uh, you know, they're welcome <laughs> to try. Um, but there's, like, of course it's scary, right? It's, it's anytime you produce art or you produce a, a work of scholarship, and you put it out there for judgment, it's off your desk, right? And you're not going to be able to defend yourself anymore. And people 
look, especially in 2021, social media and the sort of like you have the Trump scumbags on the right and you have the hyper woke identitarian scumbags on the left. And they have six between the two of them, they have turned public discourse in the United States into a a dumpster fire. Mm -hmm. And anytime you make a statement of any kind in this environment, you are actively courting this this kind of monstrosity. So, yeah, I'm terrified. You know, look, all I want to do when I write a novel is tell a good story and have people go, hey, this is a great story. I really enjoyed it. And all I want to do when I make a point as a scholar is say, hey, here's what I think about a point in history and have people say, well, I agree or I disagree or we can have a conversation about that. But that that kind of discourse, that that need, you know, writing as a means for me of communicating. I want to reach out to people and have them reach back to me and, and feel like I'm not alone in the world, right? That's why we communicate. And I do think that in 2021, the window of that kind of discourse has shrunk to a tiny sliver. And it doesn't just make me scared it just makes me sick and exhausted um and it sort of saps a lot of the joy out of it and i don't have an answer other than to try to be the change i wish to see in the world like i used to be a real asshole on twitter dunking on people and i'm done with that nonsense and i'm deeply apologetic for having ever done it and now i'm just trying to be the change i wish i could see in the world like you know just when people come at me i just don't respond and when people who i disagree with want to debate me in a civil manner, I answer them as civilly. And that's either good enough or it's not. I think it's so important for there to be those people like you, and I put myself into that category as well, as folks willing to have a conversation and represent their own point of view in a debate style. And what's important for those who listen to that debate or those who engage in the debate at times is that you're not necessarily going to change the mind of the person that you're speaking with or whatever side you feel or however strongly you feel about one side or the other if you're listening to this conversation. It's not that your mind is going to be changed by what you're listening to, but perhaps you'll walk away from that conversation having a better sense of why that person feels that way about something. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly right. Look. You know, in, in law enforcement, in firefighting, I, I obviously am militantly anti-Trump, right? But if I walk into those environments where most people are Trump voters and I flip a table and start screaming at people, what is accomplished? Nothing. Now, all of a sudden, they hate me. I'm not going to be able to firefight anymore because I'm going to get thrown out, right? Um, and I'm not going to convince anybody, right? Because I was just in there being an asshole and flipping the table. But if I sit down and I engage with them, and say, why did you vote for Trump? Let's talk about that. Hey, here's what I think. You know, that takes patience. That takes nuance. That takes effort. It takes listening. And look, I'm probably not going to change everybody's minds, but it might change some people's minds. There's a few people in my fire department who are now vaccinated who weren't before because I, I, uh, uh, you know, nattered at them long enough. You know, that has to be the way forward. And I am just not interested. And the other thing, which is that so often in our social media culture, the shitting on other people has real rewards, right? That, you know, you make money shitting on other people. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we call it an attention economy. When you shit on other people, you get likes and retweets, and that can result in opportunity. That can result in jobs. That can result in book deals, you know? So there's a mercenary uh, side to this crappy discourse. Um, and, you know, look, Mike Cernovich attacking me on Twitter about me. He didn't read my book. Right. He knew that if he attacked my book, 
and, and called me a bunch of names and said a bunch of crap that wasn't true, that would play well to his audience. He would get likes and retweets, and that ultimately will help his career. It was a cynical financially motivated ploy and an ego motivated ploy. It wasn't motivated by actual belief, which makes me even more contemptuous of that kind of dunking call out culture nonsense on both the right and the left, because it, it isn't about actual belief. It's about, you know, opportunity and, and, and trying to create, you know, economic incentive for yourself. The name calling is one of the most infuriating things for me about trying to have conversations on social media, of which Twitter, of course, is the digital bathroom wall of it all, because so many people clearly are so ill-informed about whatever belief they possess that as soon as they try and get into that conversation and you give a little bit of pushback or you point something out that maybe they hadn't considered before— their default mode is to start calling you names, and that doesn't do anything. I've, I've, blocked, I've blocked and muted so many people over the years who have proven incapable of having a conversation at the adult table. So, Well, uh, good, you know, good, good. And also, and we have examples of what happens when you do engage. The best example I can think of is Dave Wiseman. Dave Wiseman is currently a major leader in the uh, progressive veterans community. Uh, he really is helping us advance leftist. Um, veterans causes, uh, primarily through a group called Common Defense. Hmm. He was a Trump surrogate and he attacked Sarah Silverman, the famous comedian on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And instead of just firing back over the course of months, she engaged with him in a very civil public conversation. Why do you feel this way? Why do you believe this? And of course he was rude. And over the months she turned him around. And now for the past like couple of years, he's a major asset to to left to the leftist movement and social justice causes. Like he's his voice is incredibly valuable to the things I believe in, and that would never have happened if someone had flipped the table. It happened because someone engaged him in a conversation. That has to be our way forward. Well, Mike, I know I'm just one guy, but I really enjoy when somebody takes a stab at flipping the idealized narrative on its head, especially when somebody is as thorough with their research and their writing as you were with the bronze lie, shattering the myth of Spartan warrior supremacy. It is an excellent read. It is a detailed read. And I think it's one that as we uh, get on in years, people will realize just how important this piece of work is in helping folks understand that yes, even those supposed greats throughout our history were humans in the end as well. So thank you so much for your efforts with that book and thank you for the time today. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Really appreciate the conversation. Join me next time when I speak with adventurer, documentary filmmaker, and best-selling author Rick Ridgway on Life Lived Wild, Adventures at the Edge of the Map. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.